0: Part 1, Section 1, of The Sinking of the Merrimack. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sinking of the Merrimack by Richmond Pearson Hobson. Part 1, The Scheme and the Preparations. Section 1, containing A Suggestion from San Juan, Unsinkables from Havana, Admiral Sampson announces his purpose, the plan of feigning a chase, why discarded, the plan of stealing in, adopted, two methods of sinking the collier, the torpedoes, arrangement of the torpedoes, the firing of the torpedoes, other details. On May eighteen 1898, Admiral Sampson's flagship, the New York, lay at Key West, outside the reef hurriedly coaling from lighters on both sides. The Oregon, just arrived after her notable voyage round Cape Horn, lay near at hand, coaling with equal dispatch. It was evident to all that an urgent purpose and a definite objective were in mind. A few days before, the flagship had suddenly left the squadron patrolling along the mouths of the channels of the Bahamas, and had run full speed to Key West dispatches had come on board giving information that the spanish fleet under admiral severa had put into santiago harbor but evidently admiral sampson's anxiety was not relieved for he left the squadron under commodore watson to guard the approaches to havana dispatched the new orleans to commodore schley on the south of cuba and went post haste to the nearest coaling station taking his flagship alone the admiral's purpose was not known to me but the circumstances of the coaling showed clearly that distant service was in view i deemed it proper after leaving for such service to make known to him certain features of a plan relating to the prospective reduction of havana the details of which if it should be adopted would require early attention and it was while i was making this report that the admiral first proposed to me his scheme of sinking the miramac at santiago the reduction of so strongly garrisoned a city by land forces would involve enormous loss of life but our armored vessels under cover of night could run the formidable fortifications if only the mines and torpedoes could be disposed of for many weeks as assistant naval constructor with the fleet i had been studying the elements of strength and weakness in our own vessels and the vessels of the enemy particularly from the standpoint of stability and fire service in battle, and I had made special reports to the Admiral upon each vessel. This investigation showed that our vessels were particularly weak before a torpedo or mine attack. In fact, the New York, the Wilmington, and the Helena were about the only vessels of the Admiral's squadron that could stand a single torpedo blow, and these vessels were among those least adapted for standing the fire of fortifications the vessels best adapted for running fortifications the monitors would sink like a shot under the blow of a torpedo this fact had been emphasized during the action at san juan puerto rico on may twelfth it became evident after three hours bombardment that the fortifications could not be reduced at ranges above two thousand yards and could be reduced at short ranges only with heavy loss it appeared to me that the best method of reducing San Juan was to run by the fortifications into the harbor. The entrance, of course, was mined, and it was reported on good authority that a vessel had been sunk in such a way as to leave only a narrow space for passage, this narrow space itself being heavily mined. Soon after the bombardment I had reported to the Admiral on a method of going in asking to be allowed to take two steam launches with volunteer crews to start about midnight and slip in close under the shore through the neck from the westward and then come out by the main channel dragging it sweeping the mines and locating sunken vessels the exit of the launches to be followed by the entrance of the armored vessels the admiral had listened to the proposition kindly and apparently with approval but had replied that until the enemy's fleet was met he could not risk even a single vessel and that under the conditions it was evident that the sweeping of the channel could be only partial at best i then set to work on the problem of clearing a channel of torpedoes and mines the result was the outline design of a craft specially constructed to be unsinkable having the general form of an iron canal boat operating by its own motive power, rendered unsinkable by being stowed with airtight cans a foot long, and made indestructible by special arrangements in construction and by the use of wire cables. I had elaborated a plan for the use of five such unsinkable craft to precede the fleet in entering the harbor of Havana. As the construction and preparation of the unsinkables would require six weeks or two months, I thought it best to make report of my plan to the Admiral before the departure from Key West. I did so on May 29. After listening with attention to the plans, the Admiral said that at the time it was not a question of how to make a vessel unsinkable while entering an enemy's harbor protected by mines, torpedoes, and artillery, but how to make a vessel sink in an enemy's harbor, and make her sink swiftly and surely that it was quote, not a question of an unsinkable but of a sinkable unquote. not a question of havana but of santiago and that at a subsequent date he would consider the question of unsinkables he then confided to me that he was about to start for santiago where admiral severa's fleet had taken refuge and that he intended to sink a collier in the channel stating that he had indeed already ordered the commanding officer off santiago to sink such a collier naming the merrimac which was then on the south side of cuba but scarcely expected to find it done though the order had been sent by the new orleans he then asked how an iron ship could be scuttled and made to sink quickly after thinking over the question for some time i replied in effect that there seemed to be two effective methods one to drive off bottom plates from the inside and the other to explode a series of torpedoes placed advantageously on the outside we examined the chart of the harbor together and i expressed full confidence in the practicability of putting the vessel into the channel and stated that i should be happy to be allowed to endeavor to carry out the work the admiral then instructed me to study the question in detail and report to him this was on the morning of may twenty nine I studied the subject during the afternoon and evening, and thought about it during the night. We got under way about midnight, and stood to the southward, the Oregon having already left. We were off Havana early in the morning, were joined by the Oregon and the Mayflower, and stood to the eastward at full speed. My study included the complete plans, the choice of circumstances in the navigation and maneuvering of the vessel, as well as the method of sinking her. All these features were reported upon, and the plans being approved by the admiral, preliminary preparations were begun on the 30th. Various plans were considered. That of feigning a chase suggested itself from the fact that Spanish colliers were supposed to be on their way to Santiago. One had recently been captured by the St. Paul, and from her it was learned that others were soon expected. By this method the Merrimack would approach by night from the eastward, when about five miles away she would be discovered by blockading vessels, searchlights would be thrown toward her, and fire opened, care being taken to shoot wide, and to throw the lights in front and on the sides in order to show the splash of striking projectiles. The Merrimack, upon discovery, would bear in toward the shore to within about two thousand yards, apparently to seek the shelter of batteries. She would throw pitch on the fires to make heavy black smoke, as if forcing her speed to the utmost. She would head in toward the entrance and turn full down the course for entering the channel, blowing her whistle in blasts as of fright and distress. The searchlight would flash across and show a Spanish flag at her peak. On approaching, the lights would be thrown on the entrance to facilitate her navigation, but care would be taken not to allow them to rest upon her. THE SHORE BATTERIES, WHICH SHOULD FIRE ON THE CHASING VESSELS, WOULD BE REPLIED TO, AND THUS KEPT DIVERTED. IF THEY OPENED ON THE Merrimac, searchlights WOULD BE THROWN IN THE GUNNER'S FACES. HOWEVER, AN EXAMINATION OF THE CHART SHOWED THE DIFFICULTIES OF NAVIGATION TO BE SO GREAT THAT NO SANE CAPTAIN WOULD ATTEMPT TO TAKE IN A COLLIER AT NIGHT OR UNDER CIRCUMSTANCES THAT DID NOT ADMIT OF THE UTMOST DELIBERATION. It was known that tugs were used by single screw vessels of any size on account of the turn in the channel abreast Estrella Point. The chances seemed to be against the enemy's being deceived, and navigation depending upon searchlights would entail chances of failure. This plan, and various other plans involving the cooperation of the fleet, were discarded in favor of the simpler plan of going in alone by moonlight just before the moon should set surprise under any condition could be only partial at best since a certain amount of light was absolutely necessary for navigation the conditions for surprise would be more favorable toward daybreak moreover a flood-tide must be chosen so that in case of breaking the anchor gear the vessel would be set into the channel and have ample time for sinking before the ebb could tend to throw her out, while the chances of being carried by the tide through the whole length of the narrow channel into the inner harbor were very small. The establishment of the port, or time of high tide, was about eight hours and a quarter, so that the tide would be running strong flood as the moon set. The moon was then approaching full, and calculations showed that on Thursday, June 2nd, it would set at santiago at about half past three we were speeding at nearly thirteen knots the oregon had demonstrated her ability to maintain that speed and we should therefore arrive off santiago early wednesday morning and have most of the day and night of wednesday for preparations thursday was therefore set for entering though the admiral expressed the opinion that it would be found impossible to complete the preparations in that time the special advantage of thursday was that there would be an interval of darkness of about an hour and a quarter between the time of moonset and daybreak while on friday this interval would be reduced to about half an hour and on saturday day would break before moonset it will be understood that an interval of darkness though short might be found of advantage for completing the work or for making escape preparations were therefore begun at once THE GREATEST AMOUNT OF DETAIL BEING REQUIRED FOR THE PROCESS OF SINKING. INVESTIGATION HAD SHOWN THAT THE TWO METHODS OF SINKING THE VESSEL THAT FIRST suggested THEMSELVES WERE THE ONLY ONES PRACTICABLE. THAT OF DRIVING OFF BOTTOM PLATES BY FORCES APPLIED FROM THE INSIDE, AND THAT OF USING A SERIES OF TORPEDOES ON THE OUTSIDE. BOTH OF THESE METHODS WERE REPORTED ON TO THE ADMIRAL, MY RECOMMENDATION BEING IN FAVOR OF THE TORPEDOES. The method of driving off bottom plates consisted in selecting six plates in advantageous positions along the length, about 12 or 15 feet below the water line, cutting off all rivet heads on the inside, leaving the plates simply held in place, then placing a small improvised cannon near the center of each plate with crossbars to distribute the force of the explosion and cause the plate to be blown off, whole in each case, instead of merely causing a hole to be blown through it. This improvised cannon was to be nothing more than a short length of nine-inch piping, containing black powder, rammed tight, and held by a strut carried up to the deck beam above, with wedges under the heel, the powder being fired at will by an ordinary electric primer. It was explained to the Admiral that the cutting off of rivet heads would be difficult under the circumstances, and would involve two, if not three, days' delay. In consequence only the torpedo method was practicable for thursday or friday the latter method therefore was the one adopted this method was to arrange ten torpedoes on the port side placed outside abreast the bulkheads and the cargo hatches so as to give the maximum sinking effect to a breach opened up by each the torpedoes being carried by a fore and aft belt line extending along the outside from end to end about twelve feet below water each torpedo, in addition, having a hogging or girth line extending around underneath the keel for holding the torpedo in place. The purpose of the four and aft belt line was to take up the strain due to resistance in the water. The form of torpedo selected, after considering all the forms available under the circumstances, was the simple 8-inch charge in its own can or tank to be fired by its own electric primer. The use of gun-cotton, placed inside as well as out, was considered and discarded. Various difficulties were encountered in the preparation of the torpedoes, important among which was the arrangement for ensuring water-tightness in connection with the admission of the wire cable through the can or tank for the purpose of firing. The charge selected was what is known as the reduced charge, being about 78 pounds of brown prismatic powder, this quantity being large compared with the quantities used effectively for torpedoes in previous warfare the eight-inch charge was made up of two parts in serge sacks or bags the tank was as long as the tank for the full charge and this left the requisite amount of space for arranging for water tightness the charge for the torpedo was arranged to be fired by the electric primer carried in a small bag of four pounds of quick black powder this bag being in the center between the two charges the insulated wire cable passing from the primer through the mouth of the small sack and up along and outside of one of the charges on top of the upper charge were placed two white pine discs seven-eighths of an inch in thickness fitting the can more or less tightly each disc having a hole in the center for the passage of the wire cable on top of these discs and for a depth of about nine inches of the can was poured hot a gummy substance made up of pitch and tallow which while warm would close all openings and make a substance entirely watertight and which in hardening would still be pliable and spongy and not easily cracked acting also as additional insulation for the wire cable passing through it care was taken to examine whether this pitch composition poured in hot would burn the insulation off the wire but no difficulty of that sort was met with the question of making the cans water tight had been the subject of a conference with the admiral in which at first he had suggested the use of paraffin but not having paraffin on board the mixture of tallow and pitch was decided upon with the addition of gum from rubber gaskets intermingled if it was found necessary to reduce the brittleness the top of the tank was left the same as usual only a hole large enough to admit of the passage of the cable was drilled in the center at the bottom of the can was a short thickness of mineral wool the preparations of the torpedoes was begun at once gunner morgan of the new york and the gunner's gang being detailed for its execution the torpedoes ten in number were to be secured on the port side at the points determined upon for producing the maximum sinking effect being held by the belt line extending entirely around the vessel from forward aft at a depth of about 12 feet below the water as above mentioned the torpedoes lying lengthwise along this belt line the wire cable end or head of the torpedo was pointed aft in order to reduce the chances of leakage the eddy created by the torpedo reducing the water pressure at the hole in addition as was mentioned above Each torpedo had a hogging or girth line extending completely around the ship, by which the torpedo was kept close into the side and at the proper depth. Two lashings, in addition, were placed near the ends of each torpedo, securing it more tightly to the belt line. Torpedo number one was abreast the collision bulkhead, number two abreast the forward cargo hatch, number three abreast the large space forward of the boiler room, number four abreast the forward boiler room bulkhead number five abreast the forward engine room bulkhead and so on from forward aft the positions being chosen as has already been stated so as to give the maximum sinking effect all were placed on the port side because in turning with the port helm it would be the forward side so to speak making the inrush of water more rapid than would be the case on the starboard side at the same time the fact that all the torpedoes were on the same side would cause a list to port making the water reach more quickly the level of the cargo ports and would tend in every way to cause the sinking to be more rapid while the vessel being without longitudinal bulkheads would right itself finally as she went under in deep water besides the crew would abandon the ship from the starboard side the cables from all the torpedoes were led up to the bridge and from this position all were to be exploded simultaneously at a given moment with a view to affording an additional guarantee of sinking the sea connections were to be prepared for opening and all apertures forward and aft were to be opened all doors hatches and manholes on the inside and the cargo ports in the sides the question of fire in the torpedoes involved a serious difficulty signals were made to the oregon and the mayflower accompanying us For an electric machine. But neither of these vessels had such a machine, nor did we have one on board the New York. It was evident that unless we should find that some vessel of Commodore Schley's flying squadron had such a machine, it would be necessary to fire by batteries, which are particularly fragile, and in such case it was decided to increase the number of cells far beyond the ordinary number required to fire the primers. The questions of wiring and of the amount of cable required careful attention. These details of the program were approved by the Admiral. There was one feature, however, which he did not approve. It seemed to me that there was an element of weakness in the firing of the torpedoes. The number of torpedoes had been fixed at ten, which at first might seem excessive. I estimated that if all of them went off, the vessel would sink in a minute and a quarter. The number was made large because of the innate weakness of the firing arrangements, and the probability of injury before the time of firing. I requested the admiral to allow me to take in addition two warheads from the torpedoes on the New York, and place them inside the Merrimack, abreast of the two most important bulkheads, leading their connections up inside, where they could not be injured by the enemy's fire. Thus having at hand at all times a positive means of instantly sinking the ship when these warheads were asked for the admiral pondered a moment and then said quote, no i cannot let you have them two hundred pounds of gun-cotton on the inside would blow everything to the devil unquote. those who know the uniformly temperate language of the admiral will understand the emphasis of this reply the parts of the program pertaining to navigation had been studied in connection with the chart of the harbor and the pilotage publications the difficulties of navigation were of even greater consequence than those associated with the sinking of the vessel referring to the map it will be seen that the entrance is very narrow and that with the slightest deviation or error the shoal water on the left near the course of the channel would cause a failure to enter once entered however the conditions of the long narrow channel were favorable for obstruction for some distance it would therefore be necessary to have the vessel pointed fair with a sufficient speed at the entrance to ensure complete control with the helm the length of the Merrimac was about three hundred thirty three feet and the width of the channel in the narrow portions ranged from three fifty to four fifty feet it would be necessary therefore after swinging the vessel athwart the channel to catch and hold her in this position the depth of the channel varied from about five fathoms to ten or eleven fathoms the vessel would draw about seventeen feet and the most advantageous position for swinging was carefully chosen there being only a short distance in which to overcome the speed of the vessel special elastic arrangements would be necessary to enable the anchor gear to check and absorb the speed so as to catch and hold the vessel in the athwart position to realize this elasticity and at the same time to enable the anchor and chain to work automatically the chain would be roused up out of the lockers and ranged along the deck after running out a certain length the chain would begin to break elastic rope stops one end of the stop being made fast to the chain the other to a long rope hawser of larger size so that each stop before breaking would bring into play the elasticity of the large hawser which itself would be finally broken the manoeuvre decided upon and approved by the admiral was to approach at full speed stopping a short distance from the entrance so that the speed on arriving at the point for the final manoeuvre would be about from four and a half to five knots at this point position a the helm would be put hard a port as soon as the ship began to swing the starboard bow anchor would be let go with sixty fathoms of chain when about in position b the starboard stern anchor would be let drop with forty fathoms of chain the two permitting the ship to take position c where she would be lying on a span directly athwart any additional motion still remaining would be absorbed by the vessel sticking her nose into the shoal on the right side of the channel if the stern anchor chain were carried away the movement would cause the vessel to throw her port quarter into the shoal on the port side the bank being only one and a quarter fathoms deep the general plan contemplated a minimum crew of volunteers for its execution with the simplest form of duty for each member to perform the anchors were to be slung over the sides and held by simple lashings ready to be cut with an axe a man being stationed at each anchor only two men were to be kept below one in the engine room one in the boiler room one man was to be at the wheel and one was to assist with the torpedoes making in all a crew of six men the signalling was to be by cord pulls the men were to lie on their faces at their separate stations with the end of a cord wrapped around the wrist awaiting the pull from the bridge where all the cords were to converge a simple pull would mean to stand by then three steady, deliberate pulls in succession would be the signal for action. The plan contemplated having a lifeboat in tow at the stern with a long painter or line leading forward. After the performance of duty, the first man was to pull in the long painter, haul the boat up toward the ship's side, jump overboard, get into the boat, turn it around to head out, and hold it just off the ship as it swung. Then each man, after completing his duty, was to jump overboard and get into the boat. The torpedoes were to be fired when all was secure and the ship had reached a position athwart the channel. They were to be fired from the bridge. After firing them, I was to jump overboard and join the boat, which would then be ready to pull away, all of the crew having had time to reach it the boat was to be fitted with life preservers under the bulwarks and thwarts to prevent sinking if it should be riddled it was to carry seven rifles and seven belts with one hundred and fifty cartridges in each the uniform was to consist of woolen underwear and two pairs of socks each man was to wear a life preserver and a revolver belt with a revolver and a box of cartridges the cartridges being immersed in tallow if i should not appear after the explosion the boat was to pull away in charge of the senior petty officer present if the boat were interfered with it should defend itself while endeavoring to escape if it were destroyed we were to swim for a rendezvous on the bank under the morrow just inside the cove from which an effort would be made by creeping along the bank and swimming at the steep parts to make our way around and well to the eastward of the entrance before putting to sea to try to reach the squadron in all cases the party would endeavor to keep together and act as a unit the question of volunteers being referred to the admiral expressed the belief that there would be no difficulty in getting the men wanted by tuesday afternoon all the preparations that could be made beforehand were well under way THE THREE VESSELS WERE SPEEDING ONWARD ALONG THE NORTH SHORE OF CUBA. IT IS A FINE COAST, WITH MOUNTAINS RISING STRAIGHT FROM THE SEA. NO WIND WAS STIRRING, AND THE CLOUDS HUNG MOTIONLESS ON THE mountain sides. THE SKY WAS PREPARING A WEIRD SUNSET, REMARKABLE EVEN FOR THE TROPICS, AND THE WATER REFLECTED THE WEIRDNESS. THE SPIRIT OF MYSTERY OVER LAND AND SEA AND AIR AND SKY EXTENDED TO THE SOUNDS. Even the regular bugle-call to quarters and evening prayers appeared different. All nature seemed to be preparing tragedy. The enemy was near. The time for action in our sacred cause was close at hand. I lingered on deck. The moon rose bright and clear, approaching its full. On the ships sped. Cape Mesa light appeared in the distance and drew aft till it lay a beam. We changed our course to the southward, and, standing down the windward passage, passed close to the land, and caught whiffs of the tropical vegetation. The moon was near its meridian as the vessels rounded the southeastern end of Cuba. Tomorrow we should see the sun rise on Santiago. End of Part 1, Section 1